Hello, I'm Di Redmond, and I'm your host for today's Songs in the Wilderness. In this programme, we listen to the songs that have influenced our guests throughout their life and have influenced their faith too. Today, I have the pleasure of talking to Joe Boyce in Birmingham, songwriter, composer, I have to say, jack of all trades. Um, I'm delighted to have Joe on, my pro- on this programme today. Hello, Joe. How are you? I'm very well, Di. Thank you. It's lovely to be with you. It's great to it's great to be have you at last. We seem to be constantly rearranging dates because you're so busy. Yes, it is a bit like that, you know. Um, but that's the life of itinerant music ministry. You you gotta gotta go here, there, and everywhere. And it's uh, yeah, it's a bit of a juggling act at times. It sounds a great life. But let's start right at the beginning. You were born in Birmingham to a Trinidadian mother and a Barbadian father who came to England in the early 60s as part of the Windrush generation. Did you grow up very much aware of that journey and their experience of settling here? Um, you know, I don't really think so. Certainly as a, as a child in Birmingham, I, I don't think I have that many vivid memories of that time of my life. I think most of my memories are kind of built around photographs that I've seen of my childhood. Um, and I think that's probably true for a lot of people. But yeah, those those early memories are a little bit disjointed. Most of, most of what it meant to be um, part of the Windrush generation and stuff, I've, I've learned in later years, really, and, and kind of joined those pieces up together myself but were and you... from, you know, conversations with my mum. Yeah. And so was there a sense of nostalgia that, you know, I mean, for example, the weather, you know, the weather <laughs> must have driven them all mad. Um, well, there is now. But back then, as a child that was born in Birmingham, I didn't know that I was missing anything <laughs> Absolutely. until we started, until we started, you know, making the occasional trips back. I think I think we probably visited Barbados once or twice when oh, I was a child while we were still too. living in oh. in um, in Birmingham. And, and that's kind of when you start to realise, well, there's something a little bit different in the climate here. <laughs> And uh, why why do we live in Grey Birmingham? (laughs) So tell us about your early life at St. Patrick's School and and the area that you grew up in. Did you make lots of friends? Was it a good community? Um, not really, not really. You know, my mum was a midwife on the district. She she came to England to train to be a nurse. And so she was a busy working mum. Uh and and my dad uh, was a was a postman if I remember at that time when I was a a child, and so we just lived the life of a regular busy family. You'd get dropped off at school, and then you you know you wouldn't see your parents again until the end of the day. And if my mum was on a shift, maybe a family friend would have to pick us up. Um, and I you know as I said, I don't have that many vivid memories. I remember being stranded in the snow once because whoever was supposed to pick us up forgot. Left and mum was working. Left you in the snow <laughs> at school. That's the stuff that at nightmares are made. <laughs> Absolutely. So it was it was a brief stranding. You know, we weren't there for hours, but there were a few minutes of confusion when teachers were saying, you know, who's supposed to be coming to get you? And I was like, well, I don't really know. Poor you. But but they they got us in the end, and there were hot chocolates all around, and and we survived. So yeah, you know, apart from those those sorts of things, I'm remembering being just different. And my my first Holy Communion picture, I am the only black child in the photo, and they put me plum in the middle of the picture. <laughs> so I look, I look like a cherry on a vanilla ice cream. So, uh, you know, the, the, there was definitely a sense of of being different. Of uh, uh, and although it was a poor part of Birmingham, it was still a predominantly white area. So, mm-hmm. yeah, I, I was aware of of that otherness, I guess, as a child. But then, 
that the, the bombshell drops when you're eight and you move back to Trinidad. And it's, this is actually for a very good reason, because your mum thinks you're going to get a better education there. Yeah, yeah. And I, I just think that life in, in England was was difficult. There were two of us by then. My younger sister was five. And... Um, not having extended family to help with childcare and all that sort of thing can be quite difficult. And I think my mum felt that being back home where her mum and all her brothers and sisters were would just be better for us and that we'd fare better in the secondary school system over there than we would in the UK. And I think it was a wise decision. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I dare say it was primarily her decision. <laughs> I don't know how much say my father had in it, although he did move back to Trinidad with us also. Um, yeah, so I'm grateful to her really for having the courage to do that because I think she was right. I did get a very good education over there and flourished really. And you went, and, to, and the, you went the, to the best schools on the island? Uh, absolutely. I mean, I went to a private primary school when we first arrived because it was sort of the middle of the academic year, um, but then just to an ordinary Catholic secondary school, but they've got a very British education system there still. So I did the 11 plus exams and um, ended up passing for my first choice school, which was St. Joseph's Convent in Port of Spain and it was a school that had been founded by the St. Joseph of Cluny nuns and although there weren't many nuns around back then it was still still has a reputation of being an excellent school and certainly one of the best on the island and I, and I flourished there I flourished in parish life and yeah, I you know ask, I discovered yeah I wanted yeah, to ask discovered that, my leadership skills and everything is that really where there. is that where it bloomed is that where you felt that you could a sense of coming into your own because you were there 10 years uh, Ten years, ten really key years, yeah, really formative years. Um, uh, both really, the two happened in tandem. You know, I was a, a shy, <laughs> I don't believe self-sufficient <laughs> kind of child. I'm more of an introvert than an extrovert. People don't believe that when they see me on stage or they see me animating liturgies and things. But that's often true of creative people. You know, we're thoughtful, reflective people. And I'm definitely an introvert. And I remember um, at the time that I said to my mum after morning mass one Sunday in the little parish that we'd become part of, St. John the Baptist, in um, in kind of the, the foothills of Mount St. Benedict, um, I said to her, you know, I think I want to join this parish youth music group that sings at the 7.30 a.m. mass. Can you believe it? 7.30 a.m. But in the tropics, early morning mass makes sense, I guess. Songbirds. <laughs> Uh, yeah, before the heat of the day, we used to go to this early morning mass and our parish priest had encouraged us, those who were just about to enrol on the confirmation program, to become involved in a parish ministry. And I said to mum, I think I'll join this um, this this youth choir that sings at our 7.30 a.m. mass. And she said to me, can you sing? Oh, no! <laughs> and so, you know, I'd, I'd already started secondary school. I must have been about 12 or 13. Um, so I'd have been about form two. And and we didn't know yet that I had any musical inclinations. Extreme. And so it's really it's really becoming involved in, in my parish group that helped to unlock that, that kind of saying yes to that little inkling in me that I didn't know was was How was wonderful there. and awakening. So this mm. is a beautiful segue because we're up to your first piece of music. Does this resonate with these years in Trinidad? 
Well, it does actually. <laughs> Good. <laughs> I, I often jest to people that, you know, because of my heritage and my Caribbean roots, that if a hymn stands still long enough, I could probably play a reggae or calypso version of it. <laughs> <laughs> and this, this calypso version of Sweetheart of Jesus, Mike and I recorded on our 10th anniversary album, Age to Age. Um, and, you know, I persuaded him that I'd love to record it the way we used to sing it in my parish with this calypso beat. And um, I, I kind of played it for him on my, my guitar and he said, you know what, let's go with that. And uh, it's stuck. Let's hear it. Today we come thy blessing to implore or touch our hearts so cold and so ungrateful and make them lord thine own forevermore sweet heart of jesus we was Sweetheart of Jesus, sung by my guest, Joe Boyce, and your partner, Mike. Mike Stanley, yeah, yeah. rest his soul. Yeah, we can, we're going to talk about him soon. But first of all, you're back in England to study for a degree. Was it good to be back or were, were you a bit shell-shocked? 
I think probably more shell shocked. And it's interesting because um, before I came back, I'd applied both to university in Trinidad, the University of the West Indies in Trinidad, and um, to a couple of universities, polytechnics here in the UK. And I thought I wanted to go into something in the medical sciences field because, you know, my mum was a nurse and that was kind of all I knew. And and that's kind of the way I was leaning, despite the fact that I've been really involved in music in the parish. And I, you know, shortly after joining, I became the leader of that parish for also, of that parish music group. And um, so there was all of that going on. But I still thought, you know, proper job, musical science, um, medical sciences, that's the way to go. So I was looking to do a, a degree in biochemistry. Oh, really? And uh, yeah. And though I applied, I applied to a couple of places in, in Midlands universities because I'd been born in the Midlands and that was all I knew. And I, I I was accepted, but the University of the West Indies considered me to be a foreign student because I had a British passport. No. And the universities in the UK considered me to be a foreign student because I hadn't been in residence for 10 years. (laughs) Can't win. (laughs) So then I had this this feeling of, well, wherever I go, I'm going to be a foreigner. So I might as well really be a foreigner and just go back to England and, and see what life holds for me there. And I kind of knew at the time, I was 18, knew at the time that probably if I did go back to England, I'd end up just settling and staying there. And that's really what happened. Mm. And But in those first few weeks, my mum came back with to, to help me settle and we stayed with an old family friend there for a little while. But then I was in halls of residence in Coventry, Coventry Polytechnic at the time. And yeah, it was, it was quite a shell shock. And you know, the thing I missed most in those early weeks was parish life. Oh yeah, um, oh, because imagine. I'd been so involved in the church, in the youth work, in our music ministry, that lovely, strong community of young adults that I was part of, and then here I was, uh, pretty much uh, in the wilderness, literally in Coventry, uh, not able to find a, a, a spiritual home yet. I went to mass in various parishes on Sundays, mm. trying to find a place to call home, and despaired of oh. the lack of joy in the place. And um, yeah. Yeah. Was it round about was that great. time that you you actually found the chaplaincy? Absolutely. I was grateful when we finally had Freshers' Week and I discovered there was such a thing as a student chaplaincy yeah, um, and became very involved there, really. And, and that's where I attended Sunday Mass and started playing uh, for Mass there at the chaplaincy and, and, and formed a new community of, you know, Catholic young adults, but that's you. You that you make that sound like, and that's what I did. I mean, it, that that kind of modesty seems to go with you, but it's it's quite a big thing, you know, to to enter a new genre and to introduce your music and and to push it forward. I mean, that's it's quite bold, but you must have been really yeah. driven and also n- knowing that it it was good music that you would you had something to give and share. Yeah, I mean, I wasn't really making much of my own music at that point yet. I'd written one or two pieces, but I was mostly just playing whatever we played. You know, I got to know the folk hymnal. And surprisingly, you know, there was, there was quite a bit of overlap of repertoire. Those those 70s and 80s folk favourites we sang in Trinidad as well. Things like, oh, yeah. the love of my Lord is the essence and oh, yes. be not afraid. And I, the Lord of Sea and Sky. <clears throat> you know, I came knowing those already um, because... That overlap of Catholic repertoire in the English-speaking world is quite is quite strong, but perhaps that brought a different musical flavour to exactly. them. Sometimes, maybe yeah. syncopation and yeah. sort of little rhythms that that perhaps people wouldn't have intuitively used here. And did the congregation respond immediately? Yeah. 
Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I mean, I, <clears throat> I, I don't think I inflicted anything on people. You know, we just we made music together with the other musicians, and and everybody brought a bit of of who they were, and we were a lovely group of about. 40 or so students oh, that would meet for mass in an, in an upper room in a, in, a, in a house in Coventry. So it was, it was lovely. And, and um, through those years at university, it, it really sustained me. And yeah, I'm sure it did it. And to keep your, your faith um, strong through those years is quite difficult, but yeah, mm. it's, it's, it's good when you can. So who persuaded you to take a gap year and work in the chaplaincy? <laughs> Well, you know, I kind of discerned that the medical sciences weren't for me, <laughs> but I had a bit of a Magnus Magnuson moment. You know, I'd started, so I finished, <laughs> but only just finished, really, to be honest with you. So I finished my degree and I, I, escaped, I scraped a pass because I was a... A foreign student, it was quite pricey. So I did, after I did my first year in halls, I did my second year part-time over two years. It was a modular degree. So I I started um, earning a little bit part-time by singing, believe it or not, in some of the pubs and clubs of Coventry. That I'd must have been a tough gig. I, it was, it was absolutely. But, you know, I became a, a bit of a regular in some places and people would request things like the boxer and you fill up my senses. You know, if it was a folk ballad, I could yeah. probably do a pretty good job of it. And, um, and so gradually my attachment to biochemistry kind of waned. <laughs> so by the time I got to my final year, it was a case of, well, I'm going to finish this, but there must, this is not, what I've been called to. There was a real sense of there's something else for me, but I didn't know what it was. And round about the time when I started doing my finals, um, we started attending once a month our chaplaincy team, um, a monthly deanery youth mass in Coventry. Oh. And these youth masses would have guest presiders from different parishes around the place. And one Sunday evening, that presider was Father Michael White, who was the director at the time of Solly House Youth Retreat Centre. And um, Father Michael, who's still a parish priest there locally, not too far from me, is one of these people that when he spots talent, he's very good at headhunting. <laughs> <laughs> and so he got a message to me to say, you know, come and see us at Solly House and see see what we do. You know, it might be something that you'd want to consider. And I just knew, do you know when you have a knowing and inner knowing, that kind of spirit knowing, that this was a connection that was going to lead to something that God had meant for me. And and it was true. So that's how I ended up taking a gap year. I thought oh, it was because of his was, influence. Really? This, yeah, he invited me to be part of the retreat team. I'd never heard of Solly House. I don't know how I'd not heard of Solly House in four years in the diocese, um, but I hadn't. But it was a very well-established youth retreat centre, one of the first that was established as a diocesan youth retreat centre in the country. And um, I loved what I saw there. And I said yes pretty much immediately and took a gap year to work on the team there as a peer ministry volunteer and ended up being there for four years Heavens. and that's where I met Mike Stanley. And that must have been the absolute turning point in your life to meet to meet Mike. Absolutely I met Mike and I've been gap hearing ever since. <laughs> but was he just passing through or, or, or did, did uh, the priest uh, no, yet again no, introduce Mike, you? Mike kind of had a very similar story to mine in some respects although he was born and raised and lived his entire life in the UK. He too had this musical gifting and a love for the church and was trying to find out how to how to use those two together and he'd volunteered at Solly 
while he was working uh, in an insurance company at Stratford-upon-Avon. So he'd work in the day, do his day job, and then in the evenings he'd go to Solly House and help with the music for masses there with the young adults. So when I joined the team, Father Michael invited Mike to do some of our music and liturgy induction as part of our induction week on that that team there. And that was my first meeting of Mike Stanley. He delivered a workshop on music and liturgy with young people for us. This Father Michael uh, sounds like a real, you know, a, a real dream changer. He is. He is, absolutely. And, uh, you know, a, a courageous and creative man, uh, as certainly as far as his pastoral ministry goes and the impact he's had on youth ministry and certainly on the, and the parishes that he's served in and in my own life have, have been really significant. So can you introduce your second piece? And is it relevant to this meeting with Mike? Is it, is it one of your first collaborations? It. It literally is. Oh, it literally sweet. is. You know, so Mike delivered that first workshop for us and round about my second gap year at Solly, um, Father Michael White encouraged Mike and I to start collaborating and he shipped me off for a day to um, the home of a, a friend of, of ours and I'd started working on Bread of Life and then Mike joined me later that afternoon. And between us, we finished it. And it literally is the first song we ever co-wrote together. And, you know, it remains our best known and best loved song to this day. Oh, beautiful.
Bread of Life, Truth Eternal. Beautiful, beautiful song sung by Joe Boyce and Mike Stanley. Um, my guest this morning, just to repeat, is Joe Boyce from Birmingham, singer, songwriter and great entrepreneur. Tell me, Joe, how, how, did, how did you go from being an enthusiastic volunteer into full-time music ministry? Yeah, well, that was a bit of a transition. So at the end of my second gap year at Solly House, um, Fa- Father Michael, coming back to him again, mm-hmm. um, although I should also credit Father Christopher, who was my parish priest when I was a young person in Trinidad, you know, uh, we hear a lot said about our priests, but I've been blessed with um, wonderful spiritual guidance and practical guidance by the priests that I've known in my life. And I have a great love and respect for them and I'm very grateful for, for what they've given me. And, um, you know, Father Michael suggested that I could start going out to the secondary schools that visited us on, on retreat. So, and, it, you know, it's a challenge with this mountaintop experience that you can have mm-hmm. as a small group in a residential centre. How do they take that back mm-hmm. to school? Mm-hmm. Um, and so I started doing um, visits into schools to do workshops with whole year groups. And I developed this kind of superpower of being able to get a hall full of young adults to sing. Wonderful. <laughs> and, um, yeah, so over the over the... Those last couple of years at, at Solly, that was really what I was more of the outreach worker than than part of the residential retreat team. And the work that we did at CJM Music, which Mike and I co-founded, kind of evolved out of that, really. So after two years of doing that, Mike was trying to discern whether to continue with his career in the financial services or to become a teacher. Um, and I said to him, you know, Mike, I think this work that I'm doing as outreach from Solly is something that we could do together uh, as part of our own ministry. And we we kind of put a, a, a three-year plan together and approached the diocese and uh, they agreed to, to support us in getting that started. So we had a little office in a diocesan building in in Coles Hill, where our diocesan religious education service is based. And from there, Mike and I started visiting the schools and uh, parishes of the diocese. And before we know it, we were going much further afield than that, too. So in the end, I mean, like now, um, are you I mean, are you traveling all all the time? Well, not all the time anymore. I mean, this was quite a while ago, mm. Di, you know. Mm. Yeah, but it sounds like hard work. I mean, it's not just... It's quite exhausting. Yeah, it's, it, entertaining is brilliant, but it's what goes yeah, in, in between how you get so, from A to B. Yeah, so you know we've we've been, our ministry's been super supported over the years. In the in the early years, Mike and I used to just pack our little Ford Fiestas to the gunnels and head off. <laughs> and then, not long after that first year or two, um, someone in the diocese sponsored a vehicle for us, and we had a transit van to to use for our ministry, and uh, and we've been using that ever since. And in fact, it's been replaced once already. <laughs> Although Has the it one got I'm your currently name driving is all over it. <laughs> <laughs> it hasn't. No, we have to travel discreetly because you don't, you know, oh, yes, you don't want to advertise what's going on inside these vehicles. So, no, true, um, so true. yeah, but you know, God's been gracious, and although it's not been, um, it's not been an easy road. This is not an easy, or there's nothing normal about this in terms of a way to sustain 
yourself and make a living and put food on the table and a roof over your head and wheels on the road, you know, all those things, just life, life costs. And this is not a really uh, a conventional way to, to earn a living for sure, but it's definitely something that Mike and I felt very called to. And even after losing him, you know, it, it was, I couldn't imagine doing anything else. So firmly believe that this is what God made me for. And as long as, I'm doing it. The Lord will find a way to sustain me in it. I'm sure he will. Did um, being on Songs of Praise and, and, and hitting the media, did that sort of enhance your, your image or was it just a, a it, it must have? I mean, you know, just to get that much. Yeah, publicity. I mean, it helped get us known. It helped get us known in the places that we couldn't visit. Um, and, you know, the nature of anything, whether you're an author or a musician or you, your your work gets out and about if people can see and hear you. Um, you know, so the, the, doing our concerts and our itinerant ministry was really a, an important part of of helping people discover the music and definitely radio and stuff like that helps. Uh, but it was also a fun adventure to yeah. do the occasional Huge. radio thing and, yeah. and all that sort of stuff and a bit of TV here and there. But how did you package your piece for Songs of Praise? How did you do that? I mean, you, it's like half hour slot and you want the maximum exposure. Um, you know, a lot of that was Mike's doing. Really? Mike was the extrovert on the team. <laughs> and so he was the networker and the one who built those relationships with media people. And just it was generally it was just one thing led to another. And before we knew it, we were in a cathedral filming for something or uh, in, a, in a radio studio doing an interview about something. He, he was the one who had the idea of sending our um, double album Age to Age to Pope Benedict on oh, an iPod. about to talk. I was saying, and now and now you're meeting Pope Benedict. I mean, he sounds more like yeah. an agent. He sounds like a real mover and shaker. Oh, he was a mover and shaker. I just loved what we did and loved people and loved making new relationships. And uh, yeah, I, I, you know, I miss I miss that about him, um, among many other things. Mm. But uh, yeah, for, for an introvert like me, you have to dig deep to continue to do that part of the work. So we're up to the, the, the time in your life um, with the double album, but also what was the, the 10th anniversary celebration like? I mean, that was sounds like very, very big event. Yeah, well, it wasn't, it wasn't a huge event, really, you know, for a small music ministry. We produced the double album, Age to Age, which was a mixture of, you know, our best known songs and some best love Catholic classics, because our thing has always been to stay close to the church. And I think that's why our ministry has been different over the years. We, we, we're not really a performance ministry, although we do perform and we've done concerts. We're about how do we bring the liturgy to life? Mm-hmm. With contemporary, uh, with a contemporary approach to music and the liturgy that appreciates our tradition and that really understands the liturgy. And so, you know, most for most pieces, we've got a liturgical version of a song and an album version of a song. And one, you know, never the twain shall the two meet, because the way you do something for people to listen to in their cars and sing along to in their kitchens is very different from what we need when we serve in the liturgy. Um, but so we wanted some of these great Catholic classics to be on there because we believe breadth of repertoire is a hallmark of, of Catholic music ministry. And so we produced this double album to celebrate what we'd brought to our tradition, but also the tradition that we believed we firmly stood in. And we did a tour with it. And um, it was an exciting time. It was a very exciting time. Let's hear this. Let's hear this wonderful piece. Blood of my- 
Soul of My Saviour, sung by Joe Boyce and Mike Stanley. It's a fabulous, fabulous piece of music. And now we're at 2010 and your life changes radically forever. Mike suddenly falls ill. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, you know, we were just coming off the end of the second leg of the Age to Age tour because it was a double album that we released in a staggered way. And in December of 2010, we were doing our, our, our Advent Christmas concerts, which were really a feature of the, the, the year, highlight of the, the end of the year for us. And um, Mike's bowel ruptured and we discovered, um, sadly, that he had bowel cancer. And so 2011 started with him um, beginning treatment for that and me just thinking, how, how do I keep this going? How do I keep this going? How do I become? How could you keep it going? There's only one of you. Uh, yeah, absolutely. And it, it, the, tr the truth is that um, it, it, it was a little bit of a, a, a challenging time, really. It, it I just got my head down and focused on our ministry, on figuring out how to do, to continue to do the bookings. Um, one of our team, so although Mike and I were the only full-time members of the team, we had other musicians that worked with us on, on things and, and travelled with us at the weekend. And one of those, um, Andrew, uh, was a teacher at the time, but he kind of discerned that he needed to step back from teaching and he started doing supply round about the same time. And so Andrew became the one who traveled with me to our bookings. And again, that was a, you know, a timely gift of God's providence that I didn't have to uh, just hit the road solo. Um, so Andrew, Andrew became, you know, a great help to me through that time, traveling, sharing the driving in the transit van, playing keyboard alongside me at, at the events. And, uh, and, and because of his faithfulness and loyalty to our ministry, I was able to keep going in those early years, as well as, you know, many of our other core musicians who continued to serve with me on weekends. Well, God works and in mysterious ways. but Absolutely. It, it sounds absolutely. like a really tough time and all the time Mike's in hospital and... You must be visiting him and worrying about him. Yeah, he was in hospital for for a time, but then he he you know he went home once his after his bowel surgery and started recovery and his treatment for cancer, and you know himself had a very fruitful time writing the most amazing mass settings and other music. Released a few solo things. He really um, put that time to good use creatively and I think it was an outlet for him as well to, to express himself through his through his own music. Yeah, it, he must have been so, so driven. Is the fourth piece that you're, of music that's coming up now, is this, does it resonate the time, this piece, Elizabeth? Yeah, so it was written well before that time, oh, but I it's see. iconic as a, an example of Mike's songwriting, really, this is a piece that he wrote with his wife, Yvonne, um, when she was expecting one of their boys. And he he had a sleepless night, and so did she, I think. And they ended up at the piano together at home. And this piece, Dear Elizabeth, was the fruit of it. And it still reminds me very much of him, because even though I sing the first four verses as the voice of um, Mary, and it kind of imagines the correspondence between Mary and Elizabeth, having heard the news that Elizabeth, her cousin, is about to, to have a child too. Um, Mike sings that final verse and at one of our Christmas concerts during his treatment, he appeared singing it, his verse. We didn't know if he was going to be there, but he was and he sang it and there wasn't a dry eye in the house. Oh, how beautiful. As you can. 
legend and Joel, well, you know, he doesn't seem to smile anymore. Door slam, people can misinterpret heaven's plan, and it hurts to see how confused he seems. Dear Elizabeth, the time it seems to fly, people just stare. As you can imagine, and Joel, well, you know, he doesn't seem to talk anymore. Eyes blaze, and Joseph says, there's only so much he can take, and it occurs to me that he just can't see. Angels watch. 
watch for heaven's sake. Sleep, my son, till it's time to wake. Angels watch, watch for heaven's sake. Joe, you've managed to reduce me to tears. Um, I'm not quite sure how I'm going to continue with this. It's so... Well, I say we give Mike the credit for that because it's just a beautiful, beautiful piece. And um, yeah. And the way he came in um, at the end, like you said, he would. everybody would be in sobs. It's, it's beautiful. It's, it's, let me just explain and make clear what we've just heard. That was Dear Elizabeth from The Promise by Boyce and Stanley. And I've got Joe Boyce with me in the studio today. How did you ever get back into recording after Mike's death? It must have been Herculean just to have that strength to go it alone. Yeah, I mean, it took several years before I went back into the into the studio. And today it's the only solo release and it was only an EP, um, an EP called In God Alone that I produced in 2016. So Mike died in 2013 and 2016 I released In God Alone. Uh, and really it was, um, you know, the subtitle is Songs of Hope and Consolation. It was yeah. that sense of just, just being able to come up for for air again at the end of a really challenging or the first leg of a really challenging time <laughs> and uh and just knowing that, that to put a stake in the ground really that 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 Boyce and Stanley is no more and Joe Boyce is solo now so I, I released that um but you know releasing recording releasing things is quite a costly adventure <laughs> if I'm honest so I haven't released any more solo work and I'm not really that interested in the solo work. Our ministry, as I said before, was never really about this, the performance side of the work. It was really about the the liturgy and how we could serve the church there. And that sort of stuff doesn't really need um, the, the album productions so much. So we, we focused on simpler productions. So I recorded something in a series that we call How Can We Keep From Singing? Oh, yes. um, so we've got volume four. I recorded volume four of that in um, 2017, I think, thereabouts. And there's probably a volume five in the offing at some point oh, soon. So. But the music landscape has changed. So CDs aren't really the way to go anymore. So, mm. you know, it's learning how to do things as digital releases and all of that. It's a, it's a bit of a learning curve and especially post-pandemic. Yeah, big time. So you talked about um, pulling back from the bigger the bigger uh, mm. adventures and projects and, and keeping your ministry to, to, to more centralised so you can do more and teach more and share more. How, do, how, how does that work? Where do you work from? Yeah. So I'm still travelling a lot. I mean, we I've been working from home ever since 2011. So we moved out of that that office that we had in Coles Hill because it didn't make any sense to have it anymore without, without Mike there. And, you know, Zoom was already a thing for us in a big way. <laughs> and, yes. and then, you know, the pandemic came along and everyone was Zooming. But um, so I've been working from home all that time, but still traveling a lot. Um, but then around about 2019, I had a milestone birthday and it started stepping back from some of the, uh, 
youth facing work mm-hmm. and just focusing more on the formation and training type work really and work at conferences, teachers conferences, leadership conferences, music workshop days for parishes, anything that gave us the opportunity really to ha- to hand on what we've learned and, and our love for the liturgy and the vision for how alive it can be and 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 how that's not just about you know throwing in happy music and making it a bit of a jamboree but really understanding and, and loving our tradition of prayer um and so that's really the focus at the moment although i love doing things like leading the music for our dust and pilgrimage for lords and the walsingham youth pilgrimage and all those other large events that we served out for so long um i've taken the decision to step back from that just to make space for um creating the formation materials online courses and and all of that stuff and really helping uh, our schools and parishes to to find a way to to bridge the gap between the generations as well i think but that means that you have you must have trust in who you're delegating these these great projects to um that you you, you i mean like mike gave you so much you you're now giving so much in return so that the whole thing just goes on and on and on it's quite wonderful well please god yeah please god i believe that one of our one of our roles in ministry especially if you're in leadership is to to raise up others mm-hmm. um, Absolutely. and so yeah. it would be easy for me to just keep doing what i love and until i can't do it or don't want to do it anymore but actually if i haven't handed on what i've learned then i think to a certain extent i haven't done fully what i've been called to joe it's just been wonderful talking to you this morning and thank you and mike for all your absolutely beautiful music incredibly moving and incredibly joyful and energizing before we play you out uh, i just want to say goodbye and goodbye to our viewers and the final piece from joe boyce is in god alone from songs of hope and consolation thank you joe thank you Zoe. it's been a pleasure god bless god bless Stop.